All right, friends, we are here on December 25th, 2022, and we are going to talk about Jesus, and rightfully so. Uh, it's the day that we celebrate the first coming of Jesus. We just did four weeks of Advent anticipating this day, and now we look forward to his second coming. But uh, why did he come in the first place is what I want to examine with you uh, quickly. So this is a, a service that has more singing and less teaching on purpose. So this is going to be a shorter message. So we're just going to kind of fly through uh, our, our text tonight. And I see Pete smiling. He just doesn't believe that that's going to happen. I know what you're thinking, brother. I, I have the ability to read your mind. Let's pray, and we'll jump right into our text this evening. Father, thank you so much for giving us this gift to celebrate Jesus' birthday together on this December 25th of 2022. Father, I pray that as we think about Jesus, as we examine what the text in Philippians 2 says about Jesus, Holy Spirit, you would be pleased to lift Jesus up in our sight, in our affection, uh, and even would we desire to be under him in obedience? Would we desire to worship him? Would we desire to live all of our life towards him and for his glory? I pray that you would help us to pay attention for these next 20 minutes and to see Jesus in a greater light. And may he become bigger in our vision, I pray. And it's in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. So you might not think about Philippians as a book about Christmas, but there is a couple verses, several verses in chapter two, specifically six to 11, that is really all about Christmas and all about Easter, actually. So we could use this text, if you will, on Easter and on Christmas, but we are going to examine it for Christmas. So I'm going to read it and then we'll start to go through it quickly verse by verse. This text, if we were to break out the whole of Philippians 2, is speaking about Jesus. And who is Jesus? That first word with the comma, who? Who is it? Who is this about? Jesus. Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, or you could translate it like this, a thing to be held onto for advantage. Jesus did not count equality or a thing to be held onto, uh, his godness and equality with God. He did not consider that uh, a thing to hold onto for his own advantage. Rather, verse 7, he emptied himself. How? By taking on the form of a servant. And in Greek, it's doulos, which means slave. Okay, the, a lot of English translations like to soften that word doulos, but really it means slave every time you see it. And because American slavery has tainted that word and made it different from biblical slavery uh, in the Old and New Testament, uh, there's a reason why translators do that. But Jesus made himself a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory 
of the Father. So this verse six and seven is saying something about Christmas. It's saying something about the manger. It's saying something about the angels appearing in Bethlehem, announcing the birth of the awaited Messiah. And what it is saying is this, that Jesus, from his perspective, before he became a baby, what was Jesus? Or who was Jesus before he became flesh or incarnate, in meat, incarnate? He was the eternal creator God, the omnipresent, omnipotent God, the creator. And he was willing to not hold on to all of his God-like attributes, his God attributes. Though he did not cease to be God, he added to his Godness humanity. He added to his eternal being temporariness. He added to his eternal spirit, which was outside of the physical realm, physicality. This is what Christmas is about. And though he was in the form of God, whatever God is, Jesus was. He didn't count his attributes and his godness as something to hold on to for his advantage. Rather, he gave those up. Again, he did not cease to be God when he became man, but he added to his deity humanity. And we'll get to why in a moment. He emptied himself of the full use of his attributes. And so he was localized. When he was in Bethsaida, he was also not in Nazareth. When he was in Nazareth, he was not in Jerusalem. And when he was here on earth, he was not up in heaven. He was localized. He gave up his omnipresence, meaning present everywhere all at once. He gave that up and he became temporary and localized in a place 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. And he did this for us. He came and was born in the likeness of men. Okay? Now, we know he wasn't like any other man. He was the God-man. He was unique. As we heard over the last month, he was virgin-born without a father. God the Father was his father, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and born of a woman, of the seed of a woman. Now, we get in John chapter 17 a glimpse into the glory that Jesus had before he was incarnate or before Christmas. And so let's look at that real quick. One verse, John 17, five. In context here, Jesus is praying to his heavenly father right before he's about to go into uh, the cross. This is right after or during the last supper. And so he's headed from here to the garden of Gethsemane. And he says, and now father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you when? Before the world existed. And so Jesus was gloriously God. Whatever the Father is, Jesus was. Whatever the Father in Jesus was, the Holy Spirit was. And yet Jesus did not count it to his own advantage to hold on to these attributes, yet he gave up the full and continuous use of them. But here in this text, he understands what's about to happen. He is about to go to the cross 
and die, something God has never, ever done. Also, God was never, ever born. And so that's a first for God too, limiting himself. Now, I want you to look at this text here in verse uh, seven, and it says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, in the likeness of men. Believe it or not, this is a reversal or maybe a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27. You remember the creation of the first man. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Who is saying this? Who is the us? This is God the Father. This is Jesus. This is the Spirit. This is the Trinity having a conversation amongst themselves with the glory that we just read about. And they're saying to each other, let's make man in our image. And so now Adam and Eve are in the likeness of God. It says here in verse 27, so God created man, that word is mankind. So God created man or mankind in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him. That would be Adam. Male, Adam, and female, Eve, he created them. So Adam and Eve are in God's image or likeness. But notice, Jesus came in what? The likeness of men. And so it's a reversal of this text. It's God being born in our image. It's pretty amazing. God came in our likeness. Now, if you look here at Genesis 2, 7, we get a more detailed account of, of the creation. And it says that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature. And so what is man and woman in their original essence? Dirt. We're dust. We are made of the substance that this earth is made of. And you remember, from dust you were taken, and to dust you shall return. And so here, Jesus is, if you will, humbling himself to the dust. You need to see that. The very creature that he made, formed out of clay, in my mind, like a sculptor, and you have this lifeless clay image in God's image, not physicality, but it, what God can do in creating and loving and knowing justice and, and being able to uh, think and reason and feel, all that is in the image of God, not so much in the physical image of God because God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. But in God's likeness, in whatever way that man is like God, that is in the image of God. But here, Jesus comes in the image of man, in dust, in flesh. And so it's a reversal of Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 2, 7. And God overshadowed Mary, the Holy Spirit, and made conception happen so that Jesus would be born of dust like you and I. Now, Moses in Psalm chapter 90 has this fantastic description of our temporariness and God's eternality. Moses, after dwelling with uh, that rebellious generation for 40 years, pens this psalm and says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. I can't help but read that and think of Acts 17, where Paul says to the philosophers on Mars Hill, in him, we live and move and have our being. 
In a sense, in God's eternality, in his omnipresence, in his very essence as the God of life, the author of life, only in God is there life itself, movement, and being. And here Moses in the Psalms says this, God, you have been our dwelling place. You, we we live in you in all generations. In other words, there is no life outside of God. He is the creator and sustainer. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Who is that? Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse three, you return man to the dust and say, return O children of man, reflecting what we just read in Genesis 2. Return, O children of man. And then again, verse 4, reflecting uh, verse 2. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. And so here we see that Jesus went from verse 4, A thousand years in your sight or but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. Or Jesus in verse two, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth of the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And he became verse three. He became verse three. You return man to the dust and say, return, O children of man. Now you remember verse four of Philippians. I'm sorry, verse eight of Philippians two. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. He gave up the full and continuous use of his attributes. By, how did he do that? By becoming obedient to who? To his father. He always lived to do the will of the father. By being obedient to the father's will, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Now, We know from other texts, and I do have to move quickly, uh, that Jesus did not see decay, did he? He did not return to the dust in the sense that we, when our bodies are put in a coffin underground, eventually we turn back into the soil, not Jesus. He has returned from the dead on day three. More of that at the end of the psalm. One of my heroes, R.C. Sproul, says this, Jesus put aside the eternal glory that he had with the Father and made himself of no reputation by taking on the form of man and becoming a slave. Obedient even unto death, there was no emptying of divine attributes, but an emptying of prerogatives, an emptying of status, of exaltation, of glory, for the sake of redemption and for the sake of the ultimate glory of the Father. For these purposes, our Lord put aside his own glory for a season, only for a season. But he became obedient in that season, even to death on a cross. This is why he was born. How many of you have heard the the Christmas song, Born to Die? He was born to die. That's true. It's exactly why he was born. Why did Jesus not count equality with God a thing to grasp or to hold on to for his own advantage? Because he would be born to die. Jesus had to be made like us of the dust so that he would be able to be harmed. 
so that he would be able to be killed, so that he would be able to suffer. Because God in all of his attributes and deity cannot suffer the way human beings can. But God in mercy and grace and love and a desire to have us with him for all eternity, he became one of us and he became subject to death, even death on a cross. One of the worst ways you could have died uh, in the first century. I'm going to read you a little passage from Dorothy Sayers, who is uh, an author long gone. This is from Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, 22 readings for Advent. Uh, These are various sermons edited by Nancy Gunthrie. Here's what Dorothy Sayers says. For whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He, God, had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and even death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it was worthwhile. This is Philippians 2. He humbled himself, setting aside the full and continuous use of his attributes and suffered like us. So the question is always asked, and we ask it ourselves when we're hurting and when we're suffering, why would God allow evil into the world? Why would God allow so much suffering? If he's sovereign and all-powerful and all-loving, why doesn't he just stop it? And you know what the answer isn't? It isn't because he doesn't care. The proof is he entered into our situation and worse than our situation. None of us have ever died on the cross naked and ashamed, being hurled insults at. You saved others, save yourself. Come down from that cross if you are the son of God. And and so none of us has suffered like Jesus. Remember that. But Jesus cares and he promises exaltation. Exaltation is coming. And this is what the rest of our uh, passage is about here. Verse nine, because of Jesus' humility, because of his willingness to go through the suffering and pain of being born, living under the curse, uh, being rejected by men and dying on the cross, God raised him from the dead. And verse nine, more than raised him. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. There is no name higher than the name of Jesus. And and I, I would give you this to think about. Why is it that Jesus' name is so universally used as a curse? Yet, in this text, there is no higher name. Like no one uses uh, Muhammad's name as a curse. The Buddha. No one uses George Lucas's name as a curse. George Lucas. Right? He was a great man too. No, why? Because Jesus was who he said he was. And we really do live in a satanic dominated dark world. And the creator and author of life and light is the very one 
that the world uses to express disgust and curse. If there's nothing more satanic than using Jesus' name to express disgust and curse, tell me what is satanic then. And if any of you do that, I would ask you, pray that the Holy Spirit gives you the power to remove that way of being and speaking from your life. Okay, that's not good. In fact, every time I hear someone do it, I'm like, oh, they're still alive. Mercy and grace. Stub your toe and you curse the creator. What if the creator decided to curse back? Seriously. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, verse 10, and every tongue will confess. What? That he is Lord to the glory of the Father. But notice where the bowing and the confession happens. Look at verse 10. In heaven, all those in the realm of existence where God is, wherever that is, on earth, physical, flesh, breathing oxygen, heart pumping blood throughout the body, and under the earth, that is a reference to the realm of the dead, Sheol, the grave, still alive, still conscious, still able to kneel. Think about that. Everyone, no matter who, and no matter their greatness on the earth when they lived, even demonic beings will all bow the knee and acknowledge you're the Lord. You are the ruler of heaven and earth. You are the creator and sustainer of the universe, or to quote Brett Robb, universes, maybe. Spider-Man in the multiverse. I see you, Brett. Whatever is in existence, Jesus is the author and sustainer of, and it will be acknowledged one day by everyone, no matter how twisted and warped a view of them they have now, one day it will be clear who he is. And in his presence, the only option, friends, is bowing. You are Lord. You are Lord. And so my, my encouragement would be, hey, let's, let's do that now. Like acknowledge his lordship over you now so that when this day happens, you're like, yes, I've been waiting for this day to see you in person and I willingly in worship glorify you. Friends, we're all gonna do it. Do it in your hearts now. Get it right in your mind who Jesus is and who he is to you. He is your ruler. He is your sovereign. He is the Lord of glory. But yet he doesn't rule over you like a dictator. He rules over you like a big brother or like a father who loves you. Remember a few weeks ago, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The everlasting father does not mean he is the father. It means he is father-like in his rule as Lord. He cares for, he shepherds, he guides, he leads, he uh, goes out front and protects. He's father-like. He is the Lord. He loves his children in that sense. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the father. Now, you might not have known it, but uh, that verse there is quoting Isaiah 45, 23. Did you know that? Let me read it to you. 
By myself I have sworn, this is God talking through Isaiah, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. The Greek translation, the Septuagint, says this, every tongue shall confess to God. So Paul is, is pulling this language from Isaiah 45, 23, and in it, he sees this prophecy fulfilled in Christ. Jesus was born in our likeness, in dust, if you will, and he was put in the dirt. He was buried. Okay? But he did not seed decay, did he? God did not let his Holy One see decay. He raised him from the dead on the third day and he ascended into heaven. And now he is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. And friends, if you are new to Eternal City Church, uh, this is what we celebrate every single week. We celebrate the perfect life of Jesus, his death on a cross and his resurrection for us that we might have salvation, that we might know God and be known by him. Did you know that John 17, three says, this is eternal life. What? Remember, Jesus is praying in John 17. This is eternal life to know you, Father, and Jesus Christ, the one whom you have sent. Friends, is there any greater thing than for you to know your creator and love him, but then have him know you, love you. And even as Ephesians 1 says, to have chosen you before the foundations of the world, destined for glory. Father, in that same prayer, I want those whom you've given me to be with me where I am. Why? That they may see my glory. Friends, that's where we're headed from dust to glory. That's where we're going. And as Jesus is resurrected and new, he is the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. And so we celebrate Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. He was born in our likeness so that he could actually die on a cross and be buried return to the dust, but not stay there and see decay, rise from the dead, and now triumphantly he lives, ruling and reigning, and we await his second return. We await his return, his second coming.